Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. Pillar and Ground is a podcast for the LMPC family so that we may deepen in our knowledge of the ground on which we stand and increase our connection with whom we stand together in community and mission. Pillar and Ground features three different types of episodes. Pillar and Ground are connections. Pillar and Ground are questions. And Pillar and Ground are confession of faith. This episode is a Pillar and Ground Confession of Faith episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. In this episode, we're looking at Chapter 1, Section 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is concerned with the reality of Scripture's transmission and the imperative of Scripture's translation. Uh, these are two very important things for us to know because with the reality of Scripture's transmission, I'm afraid that Christians don't really understand enough about that. And so what happens in particularly secular education realms is the Bible's authority is questioned because they say things that make Christians nervous. Like, you know your copy of the Bible has errors. And we get panicked and think, well, no, they told me this was the inerrant word of God without errors. And so knowing some of this can help us weather those storms. And so first I want to talk about inerrancy, transmission, and then technology when we get into the reality of Scripture's transmission. First, uh, the inerrancy, 1.8 reads that the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time it was written was the language most generally known to the nations, being directly inspired by God. That's first what it says, and, and we understand that. We've looked at that in a previous podcast, that inerrancy means uh, that the Bible is without errors. Now, what we mean when we say that inerrancy, the Bible is without errors, we mean that the original manuscripts are inerrant, without errors. The Bible and its original manuscripts and all that it teaches is free from error. And the confession makes this clear when it says, being directly inspired by God and by his unique care and providence kept pure in all ages are authoritative. authoritative. So that in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them, and that is to the inerrant original manuscripts. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 says, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. And so the inerrancy of Scripture is based on several things. God does not lie. He cannot lie because he's God. Scripture is the word of God, and thus God cannot lie, so Scripture is free from errors. But the free from errors uh, qualification is in the original manuscripts, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Uh, that in its original manuscripts is authoritative. Um, the Westminster Confession also says that 
They were kept by God's singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages. God's particular providential care of the scriptures is a wonderful thing that the original autographs were kept by all sorts of secondary means like scribes and protected from weather and protected from individuals that might threaten harm. And it shows that he has kept it pure through the ages. And it's on the basis of these documents that disputes are handled because it is the word of God on the basis of these original documents that disputes are handled. Secondly, I want us to consider the transmission of the Scripture, having known the inerrancy of the Scripture. It says, the Confession says, but because these original languages are not understood by all the people of God who have a right to and a vital interest in the Scriptures and are commanded to read and search them in the fear of God, therefore the Scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come. This transmission imperative that we would take the original and scribes would write it down and pass it on to the next generation, and then later we would translate it into different languages, here's the reality of that. Please hear carefully. We do acknowledge errors in copying and translating. The process of copying and transmitting the text is one that is not infallible. It is not inspired by God. It is the work of scribes. It is the work of mankind. New Testament was copied by hand of scribes. But listen, so also are works like Plato and Aristotle and Galatians. The question that we must ask in light of us acknowledging transmission errors is this. Can we work our way back to the original text? And the answer that should bring you great joy as a Christian is the answer to that is yes. We have an enormous amount of copies, more copies for comparison that gets us back to the original text. There are more New Testament copies than any other document in ancient history. And so the question becomes, do we know where the differences are in order to trace back to the original? And we do. We know where the differences are because of the amount of copies. And that is a a field called textual criticism that looks at where the discrepancies are and works to get back to the original. Now, here's the good news. We know where the differences are, and I have good news. None of the differences is significant when it comes to the message of the gospel. That's really good. We know where the errors happen. Most of them are spelling errors or word order changes. But there's only two, only two major changes to the text of the New Testament in its transmission. And one would be the long ending of Mark and the other, the tale of the adulterous woman in John 8. And none of those compromise the message of the gospel. Uh, So, yes, if someone were to say to you, you know your Bible that you hold in your hand has errors, Christians, we should be mindful that espousing inerrancy of the Bible we hold in our hands, we must be careful in the world to say, I know. And do you know, we know where the differences are. And we can trace all the way back through the copies to the original manuscript. 
that we believe to be inerrant. There's also a note I want to make about technology in the process of transmission, just God and his providential care. When when they were beginning to have people like John Wycliffe, like uh, Tyndall, uh, who were passionate about Bible translation, and the Reformation comes uh, soon after that, God is so faithful in his providence to provide a technology for the advance of transmission. The, the reality that the Reformation was saying that people have the right to the Scriptures and that it's not to belong just to the priesthood and that while they're saying that, you have the invention of the printing press, that God and his providence says, yes, indeed, they have the right and now they have the means, the printing press to hold a copy of the Bible in their hands. And God used these elements to bring about the Reformation and to break through this wall of ordinary people understanding the Bible. The Reformation advanced because Christians and the church grabbed hold of technology and saturated the culture with their beliefs. Books, the printing press. What about in our day? The internet, podcasts. Things like social media. You see, it happened at the Reformation through the church. I believe the church should saturate the world with the teachings of the Bible and be on the cutting edge of communication and technology. The church that does not do this will die. So those are the realities of Scripture's transmission. Then you have the imperative of Scripture translation. The confession says the scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every language to which they come. And then why translate it? It gives a twofold reason. The original languages are not understood by all the people of God. That's Greek and Hebrew. And all the people of God who have a right to and a vital interest in the scriptures and commanded to read and search them in the fear of God. So the reason we are to translate is because not all people have the capability to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. And yet all people are commanded to read the Bible and search it in the fear of God. So it is our obligation to get to all people a copy of the translated Word of God in their language. The second reason is this, so that the Word of God dwelling abundantly in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and by perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures may have hope. John Piper has been known to say, and let the nations be glad, missions exist because worship does not. Bible translation exists because worship does not. There are people in this world that do not have a copy of the Scriptures in their own language, and so The Westminster Confession in this first chapter has a rich missiology. We are to commit ourselves to Bible translation for all the nations. We at Lookout Prez enjoy that as we get to be a part of Bible translations in Kazakhstan. We've been a part of that for the people of Sudan uh, throughout uh, China. We have partnered for years with Bible translation, and 
that is in concert with a biblical missiology, but also a confessional missiology, as Westminster Confession 1 states. As we wrap up understanding the imperative of Scripture translation, I just want to tell you some church history and remind you of the cost for you to have a Bible in your hand. John Wycliffe was a big influence of this. He became an influential dissident when the Roman Catholic priesthood during the 14th century uh, came about and was promoting that the priest should only read and interpret the Bible. Wycliffe, who you'll know, there is the, the Wycliffe group that translates the Bible currently all around the world. He's considered a very important predecessor to Protestantism. He questioned at great risk the privileged status of the clergy, which had bolstered their powerful rule in England and the luxury of and pomp of local parishes and their ceremonies. And Wycliffe advocated for the translation of the Bible into the common vernacular. He was ahead of his time. In the late 1300s, John Wycliffe's followers were called the Lollards. Parliament passed the law at that time on the the burning of heretics to make heresy punishable by burning people alive at the stake. And the Bible translators were in view. Listen to this. You could be burned alive simply for reading the Bible in English. John Fox, in his Book of Martyrs, records how seven lollards were burned in 1519 for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Why? The church realized that they would not be able to sustain certain doctrines that they were propagating once people were able to see that what they were being taught was actually not in the Bible. And then we come to William Tyndall. The driving passion of Tyndall's life was to see the Bible translated from the Greek and the Hebrew into ordinary English available for every person in England to read. Tyndall wrote, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. He wanted to get the Scripture into the common person's hands. John Piper further says from his work, John Piper filling up the afflictions of Christ, the cost of bringing the gospel to the nation and the lives of William Tyndall, Adoniram Judson, and John Patton, in that work, John Piper writes, Tyndale's Bible and writings were the kindling that set the Reformation on fire in England. Tyndale was convinced that all human beings are under bondage to sin or dead or damned or helpless under the wrath of God and that God has acted in Christ to give salvation by grace through faith and those truths that were hidden in the Latin scripture subjected people to a system of penance and merit. And Tyndall had a hunger and a heart to deliver the liberating, life-giving gospel to all the peoples, particularly the English people. And so he would give his whole life to the Bible being translated as the confession imperative is clear. What did it cost William Tyndall to stay faithful to his calling as a translator of the Bible and a writer of Reformed tradition? Well, he fled his homeland in 1524. He was burned at the stake in 1536. 
He spent 12 years as a fugitive in Germany and from the Netherlands he wrote this. My pains, my poverty, my exile out of my natural country, my bitter absence from friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger wherewith I am everywhere encompassed, and finally innumerable other hard and sharp fighting which I endure. Why did he suffer? He believed what the confession in later years would state that there was an imperative upon the church for Bible translation. John Fox recorded how Tyndall died. He spent 18 months in prison before being burned. Those months were a long dying, leading to his final death. In early October, he was tied to the stake and strangled, and then afterward consumed with fire. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He was 42 years old, never married, never buried, but faithful to the imperative of Bible translation and the Bible, the English Bible you hold in your hands. You hold because of the work of God through the lives of William Tyndall. Thank you for another episode of Pillar and Ground Podcast. Thank you.